can turn to Hebrews chapter 8. That uh, ministry moment was a good reminder to us that um, all that we have, all that we own, all that we earn belongs to the Lord. And our primary purpose in life is to further the kingdom of God with it. And so we we are to be real cautious, careful, prayerful about how we steward the resources that God's blessed us with. And um, always be asking the children, or always be asking the question, who could I feed with this money? What ministry could I further with this money? How could I glorify God with this money? How could I express kingdom values rather than American values with this money? You won't find that question being asked a whole lot out there, but it's the question that we're supposed to live with day in and day out. Now here's where we've been. We've gone through Hebrews chapter 7 and seen that the author was very intent on showing that the priesthood of Jesus Christ supersedes the priesthood of the Old Testament. And to do that, he argues that the priesthood of Melchizedek supersedes the priesthood of the Levites. Melchizedek was a type of Christ, and he shows that he was over Abraham, and by analogy, uh, Christ is over the, the Levitical priesthood. He's talking here to Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back and embracing the Levitical priesthood. And so what we saw him in so many ways do in Hebrews 7 is this. He argues that whereas the Levitical priests were under a king, Jesus Christ was both a priest and a king. And whereas the Levitical priesthood could not bring any permanent peace and could not bring any permanent righteousness, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, he's the king of peace and he's the king of righteousness. The Levitical priesthood had to be done over and over and over again. But the priesthood of Jesus Christ is done once and for all. And as we said last week, it's the one thing in this transitory, decaying, sinking world that you can grab onto and know for sure, for sure, that it's eternal. It will never end because it never began. It's the one boat that floats, we said last week. The Levitical priesthood was based on heritage, but the, Levit- the uh, priesthood of Melchizedek, and therefore the priesthood of Jesus Christ, is based on, based on God's character, based on God's oath. The Levitical priesthood is characterized by many, and it changes over time, but the priesthood of Jesus Christ is based on one, and it never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And finally, the Levitical priesthood we saw was restricted to the children of Israel, but the priesthood of Jesus Christ after being after the order of Melchizedek, is a priest of the Most High God. He's a priest for all people, the whole world, for all time. And the point that he's getting at in Hebrews 7 is to say that we have such a high priest. Jesus Christ is this priest after the order of Melchizedek. And now we come to Hebrews chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. He's argued that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is superior to that of the Old Testament, and now he wants to do two things. He wants to, on the one hand, the very closely related, argue that, show that, the tabernacle of Jesus Christ is superior to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Or better, the tent, because this is before the tabernacle. The tent that the Lord now ministers in is superior to the tent of the Old Testament. And that sounds like the most boring subject on the planet, but you're going to see it's very, very exciting. And then he wants to argue a closely related concept, and that is that the covenant that Jesus Christ established, establishes through his priesthood is superior to the covenant that was established in the Old Testament with, with the Levitical priesthood. And this stuff, you may not believe it now, but you will in the weeks to come, is huge. 
It is just huge. It's really, really, really big. It ties together. And stuff that I'm still learning as I'm researching it, as I'm getting into it, uh, it's just like a world is opening up, and I'm very excited about it. The hardest thing for me in the world to do is to try to break it into different sermons because my tendency is to go all at one time. This is one of the few times in my life I have ever been ahead on my sermon preparation. I mean, I've got the next... I don't plan sermons three weeks ahead of time. I've got three months out there. I mean, it's, it, it's good stuff. Or we can just sit here for about 21 hours and get it all at one time. It's up to you. Uh, you want a little piecemeal? Okay. But it, it, most believers have a very fragmented understanding of the Word of God. It, you know, you, you get a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. It's sort of patchwork in it. It's just sort of a montage of beliefs, but you never really see how they're fitted together. As we study this, this and they really don't see how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. Well, Christians have this idea sometimes that the Old Testament was sort of a meanie God, but we've got the nice God. God got it out of his system, and now he's okay, so we're, we're under grace. It's not like that at all. It's the same God with the same agenda, the same plan. And in studying the tabernacle of the Lord, and especially when we get into studying the covenant of the Lord, you're going to see how this all ties together. There's a unity there. It, 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 just, it is the central wheel, axis around which the wheel of Scripture rotates. So we're coming to Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 9. Now here's how this guy argues, and we're just going to get into the, to the uh, uh, introduction here. Am I getting a lot of feedback up? Are you getting that out there? I'm getting all sorts of weird stuff. I feel like I'm being beamed up. Uh, well, just work with it. If, if it doesn't get any better, if it sounds intolerable, you can make the call. I'll go hand if I have to. It's a speeching impairment, but I'll go hand, handheld if I have to. All right, whatever you want to do. Um, the way, it's sort of a preacher's nightmare. He, he argues cyclically. He makes his points cyclically, which means this. He states a point about the tabernacle, and then he moves on to the covenant. Then he comes back to the tabernacle. Then he moves on to the covenant. Then he comes back to the tabernacle. And the reason he does that is because the two are very closely woven together. But if you try to preach this linearly, verse after verse, you're going to be repeating yourself a lot. So what I decided to do is to break this into the cycles. So this morning I'm going to read three passages of Scripture, much more than I normally read. And I want to encourage you to do this. Um, be reading Romans 8, 9, and 10 on your own. Uh, whatever, else, whatever other pattern of Bible reading you have, I encourage you to delve into this and chew on it on your own. God speaks to you through the Word of God. And He doesn't need to use me as an interpreter. Okay? Let God minister to you. Now, if He blesses you through me, fine. But don't let that be the substitute for your own getting into the Word of God. We need to be people, do we not, who have a love for the Word, who just hunger for it, who digest it, and a lot of times you read it, and it's hard to understand. This stuff is not easy. But believe me, the Lord will help you. And even if you don't understand all of it, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. By the, not, not by the understanding of the Word, but by the hearing of the Word. Just get it. And God will build faith and be doing things in your life, even when you don't understand it. So be involved in that. Let's start with Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point, the central point in what we are saying, I'm reading it out of the NRSV, it's very close to the NIV, so just follow along um, if you have your Bibles there. Now the main point in what we are saying is this, after all this stuff in Hebrews 7, we have such a high priest, one who is seated, 
at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Okay, it's a very important phrase there, in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and the true tent that the Lord and not any mortal has set up. Okay, that's the theme. He's a minister in the true tent, not made with human hands, but rather that's set up by God in heaven. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's what a high priest does. They offer gifts and sacrifices. They mediate between the people and God. Hence it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Okay, if he was on earth, he'd have to be a Levite to be in the priesthood, but he's not. He's in heaven, so that's why he can do his priesthood work. Verse 5. They, that is the Old Testament, the Levites, they offer worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and a shadow. A sketch and a shadow of the heavenly one. For Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, was warned. Okay, now get that idea of sketch and shadow. We're going to be really getting into that in the next couple of weeks. They offer worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly one. For Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, was warned, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Okay, God was very concerned that Moses did it right. There are ten chapters in the Old Testament, starting with Exodus 24, that concern the details of how to make this tent. Very interesting. The tent only lasted about 50 years, but God was very concerned to spend 10 chapters of his inspired word on how to make it. That tells me there's a lot of important stuff there that's not just for the children of Israel. Here the author tells us that that was a sketch and a shadow of fishing out what all that means, what it has to say to us. Verse 6, But Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry, and to that degree he is a mediator of a better covenant. Which, which has been enacted through better promises. Amen. Go over to Hebrews chapter 9 if you have your Bibles. Otherwise, you can just listen intently. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. For a tent was constructed, the first one in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. This is what's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Holy of Holies. And it stood the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which, in which there was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above, above it were the cherubim, these scary-looking angelic creatures, Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, this, we'll all be talking about this in the weeks to come, so don't freak out. Of these things, we cannot speak now in detail. Such preparations having been made, the priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties, but only the high priest goes into the second. And he but once a year, and not without taking the blood that he offers for himself and for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary has not yet been disclosed as long as the first tent is still standing. What the author is saying there is this. The very restricted nature of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament tells you that it was a temporary thing, okay? That it was, there was something else yet to come. The high priest once a year went into the Holy of Holies 
to offer up a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which would be the sacrifice for all of the children of Israel. Offer saying that God looked for a time when all people, all believers who would enter into a covenant with, with, with him would have access to the Holy of Holies. And the fact that this priesthood was restricted and narrow shows that it was a temporary thing. It was a provisional thing. It was a sketch and a shadow of what was to come. This is a symbol, he says, a symbol of the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are, are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and the drink of various baptisms or washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time comes to set things right. All that is to say, this, this everything about this tent in the Old Testament was there provisionally, temporarily. It didn't really get people right with God, not in a permanent way, but it was there to point towards, to teach about what God would do when he set things right. And the good news for us is that God has set things right. Amen? And we can look back at the shadow, we can look back at the sketch, and it will help us flush out just what it means to live under the priesthood of Jesus Christ when God has set things right. Then finally, look down at verse 23 of chapter 9. Once again, he returns to the theme of this tent. This is so packed. Thus it was necessary for the sketches of the heavenly things, the sketches, the outlines, the shadows of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites that the Levites were doing. But the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices than these. In other words, to get into the heavenly sacrifice, don't think that killing a goat is going to do it. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one. There we got that word again, a copy. But he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself again and again, as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with the blood that is not his own. For then Christ would have to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age. That's this final chapter that we're in. It's called the end of the age. He's appeared once and for all at the end of the age to remove sin by sacrificing himself once and for all. He doesn't need to every week get crucified again. He doesn't need to spill the blood over and over again. He entered, if he was on earth, it would, have to, it would, it would be that. But the earthly is a shadow, a copy, a symbol, a pointer to the real tabernacle, the real tent which is in heaven. And there, the offering is made once and for all. It's sort of like a timeless thing, now in the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, once a year, the Lord would come down and accept the sacrifice or judge the people, as the case may be. Now it's done once and for all, and God has once and for all declared, it is done, it is over, it is finished, the offering is acceptable. You are cleansed of your sins. It doesn't need to happen over and over again. It's there in the heavenlies in a timeless kind of a way. Everything about the Old Testament thing was to point to that. And just as, is, as it, verse 27, and just as it is appointed for mortals to die once. If you're ever talking with people today think that reincarnation is consistent with Christianity, this is the verse you need to have. Everyone say once. Once, that's right. Just as it is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that the judgment, 
so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Thus reads the word of God this morning. Let's pray. Father, let your word come alive here in the next 20 minutes that I've got to try to just uh, lay the foundation for this whole thing. Help me, Lord God, to speak clearly and succinctly and not too quickly, but to rely on you to give authority to your word. God, you've chosen by the foolishness of preaching, and it is foolish. I don't know why you chose this method, but it glorifies you because, because if you can use this to get your work done, you can use about anything. So, Lord, use your word here. Use the, use the message to impact our life for your kingdom. We pray in your name. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. here we go. I'm only going to get into the introduction of this today. Um, this, is, uh, this is good stuff. Here's the introduction. In Exodus 25 through 31 and 35 through 39, you have a description, detailed description of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Ten chapters spent on this. That's got to tell us that this is an important topic. We now see why. The author says that this is a shadow, a type, a copy of what was to come. We can learn a lot about the true sanctuary, which now involves us and our salvation and how to walk in right relationship with God. It, it, it will reveal a lot about the things of God by looking at this tabernacle in the Old Testament. It's exciting stuff. A type, a word about this now, a type is something in the Old Testament that points towards something in the New Testament. It forced Melchizedek was a type of Christ. We've been talking about that. He wasn't himself Jesus Christ, but the way Scripture portrays him, he functions. You can learn a lot about Jesus by looking at Melchizedek. That's what it means. Okay, he points to Jesus Christ. So by examining the way he's the king and priest of righteousness and examining the way that Scripture doesn't talk about his parents and doesn't talk about his death, we learn something. He points to the real thing, Jesus Christ, who didn't have a, a human lineage and who never does die. Okay, that's what a type does. That's what a foreshadowing does. It's important, preliminary word here, that you don't get carried away finding types in the Old Testament. Some people do. In fact, it's been kind of a tendency throughout church history that uh, some have read the whole Old Testament as though it didn't really happen. Nothing really says what it, what it appears to say. It's all figurative. It's all allegory. It's all symbolic. It all points to something beyond itself, Okay. And, and, and some people still today, in fact, quite a few people still today, can go haywire on this stuff, even in dealing with the tabernacle. You start reading symbols into things, and you start pulling all sorts of doctrines out of esoteric little uh, references. The methodology that I would have in going back to studying Old Testament typology, including the typology of the tabernacle, is this. Where scripture warrants, gives us a hint or a, a teaching that some, something is a symbol of something else, then we can confidently say this is a symbol of something else and teach on it. But I'm very worried that we don't start guessing at what things mean. I think that the color uh, lavender here symbolizes our need for repentance. And therefore, uh, whenever lavender is used in the Bible, it, it really means repentance. You see, but the Bible doesn't say that lavender means repentance. If it did, you'd have a good point, but it doesn't, so you're guessing. 
And if you're guessing, things can get the guesswork out of this. Where we have a foundation to see a typology, I want to discuss it. But I don't want to go hog wild, even if it's tempting to do so because something really looks like it could fit, but rather where Scripture gives us some license to do it, then we want to do it, but not otherwise. Here, the author tells us that the details of the tabernacle are a pointer. So we're justified in going back and where Scripture warrants to say, okay, what about the temple um, points to the real, te the, the real temple of the Lord in heaven and our relationship and entrance in the Holy Holies and things like that. And there's some great stuff there. But we don't want to get crazy on it. As a general rule of thumb, let me just do this as a teaching sort of a moment. A teaching sort of a moment. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, usually, in fact, I'd say always, it, when you turn the Bible into a puzzle book, you're going to get screwed up, okay? Um, when you start reading, you know, secret meanings, uh, you know, and findings and stuff and pulling uh, weird things out of text, uh, it, what it really means is this. You're asking for trouble, and at best, you're wasting your time. The Bible is an ordinary book, and there's a point to that. We're going to get to it a little bit later on here, I think. Um, but it's not the case that God so loved the world, he gave us a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, he doesn't want us, the, the, the hard work of Christianity should not be trying to figure out what God, who always talks double talks, says. The hard work of Christianity is how to walk in covenantal relationship with him, given that he said what he said. But God speaks clearly. He doesn't like have tunings and all sorts of weird gobbledygook stuff. That's why, as I said last week, I'm very reticent about going to the book of Revelation with a, with a magnifying glass and trying to spend a whole lot of time figuring out what the particular symbols mean. I, if, if God really wants us to see it, he, he's perfectly capable of communicating at our level in a way that's clear. There's a lot out there, folks, now. A lot out there. The Bible into some sort of weird, uh, uh, cryptic puzzle. Just read a book recently called The Bible Code. Now, maybe you read it and liked it, and I don't want to, you know, hurt your feelings, okay? So, hey, this is my opinion. But with this Bible Code, and now, the, the Bible Code came out, and now there's two other books that are sort of a counter code to it. They're, they're saying, no, the real code is this. And there's a little code war going on, I guess. But what you do is you put, uh, you put all the letters of the Old Testament in a line, feed it into a computer, and you have all the letters going across, and then in the next uh, uh, trajectory that you feed in the computer, you have all the letters but one uh, fed into it, and then you have all the letters but two, and they go down, and then all the letters but, but, but three, and those three go down, and so you, you, you devise this kind of a, a plan. And then you tell the computer, find me uh, uh, Yahasa Arafat in there, or find me you know, the word Jerusalem, or find me... And the computer will spill out whenever the word in any configuration is used. And then you look at it and you see that, oh, look at now we have you know, Arafat and uh, Yasab Rabim in there together. Well, that must be a prophecy. What do you say? I don't know if you could do this with Shakespeare and come out with the same results. I don't know, but it sounds to me screwy. There's, such, there's almost an infinite number of, of letter combinations that you could get... What would happen if you put in there Walt Disney and Antichrist? I'm sure that you'd come up, maybe he is, I don't know, but <laughs> focus on the family thing, so. But uh, you'd, you'd have, who knows what combinations you could come up with. The point is this, can you imagine God, I mean maybe there's, there's double meanings and stuff, but do you think God, is it a good stewardship of time to be sitting there trying to put the Bible to a computer which has been around for 15, 10 years at the most, and the power you need, these kind of computers have only been around for about three years, and God, from the foundation of the world, is giving us a puzzle that only the last few people on the planet are going to be able to figure out. And even then, it's controversial. I think God can do better. So all I'm saying is this. 
The job is to read the Bible and, and, and as much as possible understand what it said in its original context, and that is the obvious meaning of it. Don't get weird on us here. Don't, don't start, you know, oh, the number of this, you know, and, and getting all esoteric. It's kind of a new form of Gnosticism, and I just want to be warned about that. I have personally witnessed some incredible doctrines coming out because people thought lavender was the color of God's eyes or something based on the numerology of this verse or what have you. It just gets weird. I'd suggest staying away from it. But see, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of like the equivalent of theological tabloid papers. There's something interesting about it. It's, it, it like satisfies our curiosity. God rarely wants to satisfy our curiosity. Okay, I, I gotta move on. Quit, quit stalling. Let's talk about the tent. You guys always get me off track. It, it's your fault. You can never get to my point. Okay, foundational teaching on the tent. Lord, let me make this succinct. This tent was what the children of Israel had while they were wandering in the wilderness for those 40 years. It was about the size of a half of a, a football field. Okay, the whole, the whole thing was. But most of that was a courtyard, which was called the outer court. There are three parts to this. In fact, we have a photograph. A person had a camera back then. We have a photograph of this, and I'm going to show it to you next week. A nice, nice color photo, as a matter of fact, um, of this, uh, this courtyard. There's three parts to it. There's an outer court, okay, which takes up most of the space. That's half the football field. Then you have the tent. It's just a tent made in certain ways. And uh, the tent is divided in two. You walk into the tent, and you, you are in the, what's called the holy place. That's where the priests went all the time to do, to, to do their intercessory work. But then you had, beyond that veil, the holy of holies. So all together there are three parts, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. This will become uh, important later on as we pick this apart. The word for tent here is that, what I want you to see about that is this. The children of Israel about this time number about two and a half million people. Two, two and a half million people. This is their sanctuary. And I want you to note how small it is. Okay? It's like, look out at the football field here at Harding. Take half of it. And that's going to service all the Twin Cities, basically. Okay, this is a rather small endeavor. The tent itself was the size of any one of the small houses that you'd see around here. It was rather small. This is what the Lord called Mishkan. Okay, the, 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 the word tent uh, is called several things in Exodus. Mishkan is one of them, which literally means dwelling place or residence. Hebrew scholars tell us that there are two words connected with it that it's a derivative from. Shakane, which is the word for neighbor, and Shekinah, which is the word for God's imminent presence, which tells us this already. This little tent was to be something, it was to be the place where in the Israelite mind, this is where God wants to come and dwell as a neighbor. This is God's presence dwelling as a, as a neighbor. It was also called Od Odel Meod, which was called Tent of Meeting. And so to the Israelite consciousness, this is the place where you'd come to meet God. It, this is the point of contact, okay? This is the point where you're going to touch base with God. Now, the question that we need to ask is this. Why a tent? Why a tent? Couldn't God do it some other ways? Yes, he certainly could have, but he chose a tent, and there's a point to that. And this is the, all the farther we're going to get this morning. The tent itself says something profound about God. From the foundation of the world, go back to the very beginning. Why did God create the world? He created the world because he wanted to express his own inner Trinitarian love outwardly. Okay? He wanted to just uh, have, invite others into the celebration of who he is. 
God created the world out of love. Didn't need to create the world, but he wanted to create the world. Just like parents don't need to have kids, but they can have kids as an expression of their own love, and then they are to invite the kid into sharing their love. That's what God does to the world. Okay, that's in the nature of God. For that to happen, you can't make robots. You have to have people who can choose it, which means you have to have people who can choose against it. It has to be free. The word for choosing relationship with God that's used throughout the Bible is the same word that's used for choosing relationship with anything throughout the Bible, and it's the word covenant. There has to be. There is no relationship without some understanding. It's like a contract that, that leads to a relationship is there to stipulate the conditions of our relationship. Here's what I will do for you. Here's what you will do for me. It is a time. In the ancient world, when two tribes would have a covenant, the leaders would take off their tribal cloak, which would identify them as belonging to a certain covenant, and give it to the, the, other, the, the leader of the other tribe, and he would do the same. What you're saying is that we want to be together. Our, we don't become each other, but our, our identities are irreversibly wrapped up with one another. All right? You would exchange possessions. You would now be dwelling together. What you have is what I have. What I have is what you have, okay? This is the covenant. It's an agreement. The result of this that God wants with us is that when we enter into a covenantal relationship with him, and we'll be talking a whole lot more about covenant in the weeks to come, but the result of the whole thing is intimacy. The goal is relationship. The goal is not the conditions of the relationship. Those are the means to the end. That's what the law is all about in the Old Testament. The goal is intimacy. God wants intimacy with us. The original covenant was between uh, uh, Adam and Eve and God. God created them, but there was a covenant there. There were stipulations about what will preserve relationship. Why? Because it has to be there for choice to be there. He can't program these people to love him. So you have the forbidden tree and that whole thing. God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He walked with them in the cool of the day. Read Genesis 3. There was intimacy there. There was familiarity there. God dwelt with them, and, he, uh, and they dwelt with him. Okay, there was a, what, what God had, he shared with them, and they were to take the garden and share it with him. That, that's what relationship was all about. Sin is essentially covenant-breaking. When we sin, we violate the, 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 the agreements of the covenant. And the result is always the same power that would bind you together now splits you apart. This is why covenant-breaking is such a severe thing. It's like splitting the atom. The power that would hold things together, when you split it, it explodes. And it's a devastating thing. This is why God is so intent against sin throughout the Bible. It's covenant-breaking. So what we see with Adam and Eve is that they're cast out of the garden. They're separated from God. And the blessings that God wanted to bring to them now turn into curses. Everything gets reversed. We've been in this state of warfare ever since. Instead of covenant, now you've got war. You've got hostility. Instead of familiarity, you have distance. This is why in this world right now, God is not obvious. He's not obvious. This is why you have so many different views of God and so many different religions about God, because it's not obvious. Where you don't see God, you guess at what the gods or what God may be like. Shows that we're in a covenant-violating condition, so we don't see clearly. We're not related clearly. But God always wanted to win back this covenant. The whole Bible can be summed up in this. Love and war. Covenant and war. God trying to establish covenant and the people... In the world, and even the people of God declaring war on that. Love and war. It's the whole theme throughout the Bible. It weaves together everything. You can't understand in a whole way what the Bible's about unless you understand those two themes. God's always seeking to establish a covenant with his people. A covenant with his people. And so he comes to Noah. 
And he establishes a covenant with Noah. And then he establishes a covenant with Abraham. And then he establishes a covenant with Noah, I mean with Moses. Always trying to establish a covenant with particular people with the hope, the goal, of eventually establishing, reestablishing the covenant with the whole world. What you have here in the Old Testament with this tent business is this. This is God's first baby step. And now, having established the covenant, he's in a, in a baby step way showing them what the blessing of a covenant is, what it means to be in covenant by starting to dwell with them. A covenant where there's a real relationship, you dwell together. You take what the person has and you take it on your own and you give them what you have. This is the beginning of it now. This is the first step. The people of Israel live in tents. This is the point of it. They live in tents. This is, they wander in the wilderness. They're living in tents. This is their life. So as a way of God saying, you know what? I, I, I want a relationship with you. I, I want to be on your level. God is essentially telling them, I'll live in a tent. I'll live in a tent. I'll, I'll journey with you. Um, like, 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 a, like a dad who will play matchbox cars with his kid even though but you do it because this is where the kid's at, and if this is where the kid's at, and you want to have a relationship with the kid, you play matchbox cards. Well, if the people live in a tent, and you want to be their neighbor, you got to live in a tent. So God comes down, and he says, here's the tent. It's a small tent. It's not extravagant, but that's the point of the whole thing. That's the point of the whole thing, the ordinariness of it, the smallness of it. He's, in a sense, this is where God is mushkan. This is where he wants to be a neighbor, his presence to roll as, as a neighbor. We still don't get the point in Christendom, I don't think. The pagans were always building these incredible edifices to God, these incredible monuments to God, constructing these huge statues. You go to almost any culture, and the greatest architecture, the most extravagant art, and most of the expenses are put towards some monument to God. Because they think that somehow God is shown off better by the big than he is by the small. But if you know the true God, you know that nothing can be big enough to even show off God more than a small thing could. It's like thinking that you're closer to the moon because you can jump an inch higher than another person. Uh, a huge, wonderful, gaudy cathedral does not display the glory of God more than a pup tent. It maybe is an inch higher, but you know what? When you got the moon to cross, it's kind of insignificant. Pagans do that all the time. That's the, that's the, and there's a, there's a natural tendency on the part of human beings to want to somehow display God in that sort of a way, but what God wants is a little tent. What God wants is the ordinary. What God wants is a relationship with ordinary people. What we want sometimes when we're apart from God is we want to, give, we want to put things in between, a surrogate relationship. Instead of a real relationship, we want to substitute things. So we want a nice building, a big building. We want nice shiny works. We want flashy preachers. We want fancy this and fancy that. And we call it glorifying God. God doesn't want the fancy stuff. He doesn't want the gaudy stuff. He doesn't want the slick stuff. He wants the ordinary stuff, and he wants reality with the ordinary stuff. He wants a relationship with an ordinary stuff. What we've got to see, and this is what God was driving home in the Old Testament, is this. A fancy building does not glorify God. Or if it does, it, it glorifies God in spite of the fact that it's fancy. Amen? And slick programs don't glorify God. Or if they do, it's in spite of the fact that they're slick. The, 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 the humongous buildings we can build and the fancy stuff we can put out there, that is, that's a substitute. It is the nature of idolatry. It gets into the way of what God wants. Throughout the Old Testament, when God would establish a covenant, he'd do something like this. He'd always build a memorial, an altar, but whenever he'd make a new covenant with somebody. And he'd say, you know what, I'll build an altar. Go pick up some rocks. Pick up rocks. Now, 
the pagan mentality would say, oh, we need to make it gold, we need to make it flashy, it needs to be big, we need the best, the brightest, the wild bang. God says, just pick up rocks. Just pick up rocks. He'll do the job. God is the God of the ordinary. The point for us to note is this. The, the, the foreshadowing it, what it applies to us in a nutshell is this. Never let religion and an inclination to be fancy get in the way of our relationship with God. Never think that God uses a slick person more than God wants to use you. You're ordinary. I'm ordinary. God can use you, wants to use you as you are. Paul says that when I am weak, then he is strong. That's the point of the whole thing. When we've got nothing, then he's got everything. With Christ, all things are possible. Without him, we can do nothing. He wants us ordinary. He wants us weak. He looks for the lowly. He looks for the humble. He looks for the ordinary. And our covenant with God and our covenant with one another has got him onto this. Let's never get different from, from, from that. Let's always strive the flash, the religious, out of it. We could, however, spend for a new microphone, but <laughs> otherwise, this is so important that when we come together, we don't feel like you've got to dress up in some special way. We're ordinary. Ordinary music, ordinary preaching, ordinary everything, but God uses the ordinary, amen? He dwells in the ordinary, praise God, that he wants to be down here on our level because only by coming down to our level, he raises us up. Now, there's four different ways that this typology is fulfilled in the New, in the, in the New Testament, but I'm not going to get there right now. In fact, we're going to close. I just want you to walk out here with this understanding. You, ordinary person, like me, ordinary person, God can use you as much as the Apostle Paul or Peter or anything. In an ordinary building, he can use better than he can use some fancy church edifice. Take the ordinary and let God invest it with the supernatural, and that's how he's glorified. Father, I pray that your presence would go with us as we go out of this place. I pray, Lord God, that we'd see our ordinary homes and our ordinary lives and our ordinary talents as the supernatural conduits of your presence, Lord, as the means by which you want to be glorified. I pray you'd be glorified in our ordinary families, Lord. Be glorified in our ordinary relationships. Be glorified, Lord God, in everything that we do. Free us from the, from the tendency of idolatry, Lord God, to, make, to put in surrogate things in place of the real relationship. And just be glorified in our lives as we go out of this place. In this ordinary world that really needs your word, we pray in your name. Amen.